Welcome to Intermittent Signal. I'm David A. Westbrook. This is episode number 11. Today I'm going to start the audio version of another book, Getting Through Security, Counterterrorism, Bureaucracy, and a Sense of the Modern, which Mark McGuire and I wrote together. With luck, Mark will do a few chapters. He has a wonderful Irish voice. We're going to begin with a publisher's introduction, which might give you some sense of whether you want to listen to this as opposed to something else. It's fascinating stuff, I think, but it's not for everybody. No worries. Because it would be weird to praise myself in the third person, I've asked Vince Parlato to read the introduction. Life and other efforts get in the way, but this makes three books that I'm introducing as podcasts for free. Smith Lake, Welcome to New Country, Music for Today's America, and this one, Getting Through Security. I hope, eventually, to have the podcast bound together as informal audiobooks, for which I'll probably charge a modest fee. Why would one want a formal audiobook? Never mind. As almost always, the music has been composed, performed, and produced by Vincent Parlato. Getting Through Security offers an unprecedented look behind the scenes of global security structures. The authors unveil the secret colleges of counterterrorism, a world haunted by the knowledge that intelligence will fail and Leviathan will not arrive quickly enough to save everyone. Based on extensive interviews with both special forces and other security operators who seek to protect the public and survivors of terrorist attacks, getting through security ranges from targeted European airports to African malls and hotels to explore counterterrorism today. McGuire and Westbrook reflect on what these practices mean for the bureaucratic state and its violence, and offer suggestions for the perennial challenge to secure not just modern life, but humane politics. Mark McGuire has long had extraordinary access to a series of counterterrorism programs. He trained with covert behavior detection units and attended secret meetings of international special forces. He found the security professionals for all the force at their command, are haunted by ultimately intractable problems. Intelligence is inadequate, killers unexpectedly announce themselves, combat teams don't arrive quickly enough, and for a time an amorphous public is on its own. Such problems both challenge and occasion the institutions of contemporary order. David Westbrook accompanied McGuire, pushing for reflection on what the dangerous enterprise of securing modern life means for key concepts such as bureaucracy, violence, in the state. Introducing us to the secret colleges of soldiers and police where security is produced as an infinite horizon of possibility and where tactics shape politics covertly. The authors relate moments of experimentation by police trying to secure critical infrastructure and conversations with special forces operators and Nairobi bars, a world of shifting architecture, technical responses, and the ever-present threat of violence. Secrecy is poison. Government agencies compete in the dark. The uninformed public is infantilized. Getting through security exposes deep flaws in the foundations of bureaucratic modernity and suggests possibilities that may yet ameliorate our situation. Prologue. March 22, 2016, Brussels Airport, Zeventum, and Malbec Metro Station, Central Brussels. At 0755, a CCTV recorded Ibrahim al-Bakrui, a well-known street thug with terrorist links, and two other men arriving at the airport by taxi. 
the men placed their luggage on trolleys and entered the terminal building. Three abreast, they pushed their trolleys through the departure hall. A senior security officer passed between them, would later recall half-registering something odd, but continued toward his office nonetheless. Perhaps it was nothing. Momentary experience quickly becomes memory, and memory is a trickster. At 0758, El Bakuri stopped at the Delta Airlines check-in area, shouted something, and detonated his nail bomb. People fled in all directions. Some were lucky and escaped. Others were not so lucky. Najim Lakhroui, a failed electric, electrical engineering student, a foreign fighter, and, for several years, a Brussels airport worker, was a few dozen yards away. When the first explosion ripped through the airport, he took aim at the fleeing civilians and ran at them with his explosives-packed trolley. The bag with the explosives fell off the trolley before detonating, lessening the impact and resulting in fewer deaths. At that point, a third attacker was far more alive than he should have been. CCTV footage shows El Bakrui and Lakrui walking towards their victims. Each man apparently wears a single black glove on his left hand. In the same footage, we also see Mohamed Abrini, a former baker and petty criminal, dressed in a light jacket and wearing a floppy hat. When the bombs went off, however, Abrini hid behind a pillar, abandoned his own suitcase bomb, and joined the crowd fleeing the airport. Hours later, the bomb squad discovered his suitcase, filled with triacetone triperoxide, TATP, near the Air France desk. The suitcase exploded as the bomb squad began their inspection. Abrini became a suspect at large in the capital of Europe. For days, Europe lived in fear of the mysterious Lama Chapeau, the man with the hat. As the attack unfolded at Zaventum Airport, confusion prevailed throughout the region. The mobile phone network went down. The emergency system was unusable. Security officials scrambled to establish command and control. An email ordering the closure of the metro system was sent, but never read. Meanwhile, Ibrahim Albarkrui's younger brother Khalid, who had an extensive criminal record, walked through central Brussels wearing a backpack. He made his way down into the Malbec metro station, just a 10-minute stroll from the headquarters of the European Commission and the European Parliament building. At 9-11, he detonated his own nail bomb. In all, 33 civilians and three suicide bombers died, and over 300 people were injured, many dozens seriously. There was supposed to be yet another suicide attack, but Swedish national Osama Karim changed his mind at the last minute. In 2005, when he was just 11 years old, Karim participated in a documentary film celebrating successful integration activities. Ten years later, he sent a relative a photograph in which he posed in front of an ISIS flag in Syria brandishing an AK-47. He had, clearly, taken a different path. But in many ways, Krayim did not matter. The terrorist attack on 22 March brought a halt to the center of Europe. Bureaucrats were locked into their offices and hotels, unable to use the telephone network, and even if they did venture out, all public transport, trains, and flights had stopped. The still CCTV image of Albarkrui, Lachrui, and Abrini with his floppy hat circulated. Where was Lama Chapeau? And why were the other two wearing only one left-hand glove? Later, it was discovered that the CCTV image was misleading. Poor pixelation and shadowing gave the illusion of gloves. But the battle over truth was fought on many levels. Hashtags appeared like mushrooms after the rain. Questions were asked about prison sentences, homegrown radicalism, and racism. Brussels was clearly more vulnerable than people had presumed. 
technical and political matters collided in the airport. Analysts demanded that security be pushed out and the land side far from the terminal. There was also a desire to reopen the airport as soon as possible to show strength and resolve, but the airport police went on strike, insisting that security could not be guaranteed. Those concerned with security often sound a rather abstract warning to be specified by context. It, a coordinated terrorist attack, could happen here in Brussels. In fact, it did happen here. Dozens of people killed with nails in the sometimes ostentatiously peaceful capital of Europe. Not just the continent, but the European project, which so many people believe to be a crowning achievement of modern politics. Nail bombs, in contrast, must be pre-modern somehow. Even in Brussels, however, such attacks were hardly unimagined. On the contrary, by the end of 2015, European security services were on high alert, anticipating what might be next, and in that simple-minded sense, too, modern. Summer of 2015, the VIP day of a NATO-funded counterterrorism training program on combating marauding terrorist attacks, or MTAs. After invitations to the VIP day had been sent, but before the event itself, terrorists in Paris killed cartoonists in what came to be called the Charlie Hebdo Massacre. Evidently, the organizers of the counterterrorism training program, two internationally respected experts, possessed unusual foresight. During the week-long program, footage of the events in Paris was often replayed. The general tone of the program was one of seriousness. More attacks were felt to be imminent, as proved to be the case, and discussion often turned to worst-case scenarios. By noon, the core group of about 30 attendees left the classroom to meet the VIPs, a handful of senior police officers, military chiefs, political figures, and various policy influencers. The National Army's chief of staff arrived, received salutes, and greeted the civilians in order of importance. Then he turned to one of the organizers and nodded a command. Right, the organizer of the demonstration of counterterrorism, the demo, bellowed. Outside, up the steps, and no talking. Attendees hurried outside and up some makeshift steps onto the back of a flatbed truck that had been set up as a viewing platform. Before them lay an urban scene several brick buildings along a pedestrian street, with a confectionery shop and a gasoline filling station. A number of people seemed to be going about their daily business. A man and woman refueled their car. A mother pushed her child in a stroller. A mixed group of teenagers chatted next to a bench on a small grass square. The knowledge that the scene was an exercise and a demonstration of prowess and a political performance, rather than an actual attack, gave it the horrifyingly distant yet real feel of a public broadcast about the threat of nuclear war. It is unclear exactly what happened next, but a car with several young men came to a stop along the fake road, slightly outside of sight. Moments later, a police car came into view, slowed, stopped near the gas station, and turned back towards the young men in the parked car. Instantly, the men emerged from the vehicle with weapons and began firing at the police car. The noise was shattering. One of the police officers stumbled out of his vehicle, fell to the ground, and unsuccessfully attempted to drag himself to cover. The police car, one door still open, reversed its speed. For a moment, the attackers seemed to pause, as if they no longer knew what to do. 
Then they began to fire indiscriminately. One man threw a grenade. The man and woman at the gas station both fell to the ground, where they remained motionless. The teenagers scattered in all directions, screaming, one almost colliding with the mother, who was now cradling her child in her arms. By now, the noise was genuinely distressing, a cacophony of crying, screaming, pleading, and gunfire, made even more disturbing by the nonchalant movements of the men who hunted other humans. Before long, another police car arrived. This was one of the larger, more powerful-looking estate cars that one sees in capital cities or near airports. It blocked the road, and two armed police officers went to the back of the vehicle to retrieve heavy weapons, but they did not engage the attackers. An ambulance arrived, but it too remained at a distance, behind the police barricade. The whole enactment was transfixing. But suddenly, an event organizer materialized from nowhere and bellowed, Ten minutes! Feels like an hour, eh? But only ten minutes so far. They can't go in, a French security officer explained. You see, they have to contain. They can't become the victims, too. Soon, a deep mechanical sound split the sky somewhere beyond the horizon. In less than one minute, two bottlenose Dauphin helicopters appeared overhead. One helicopter instantly vomited out a dozen men on climbing ropes, while the others seemed to keep watch before landing at some pre-chosen point and disgorged medics and more armed men. They formed up into two groups behind ballistic shields, called bullet catchers, and seemingly without command, they dropped their weight slightly and, weapons pointed forward and to the side, advanced like a single entity. The two teams were hard to follow, obscured as they moved. The disorganized crackle of the attacker's gunfire gave way to what sounded like short bursts of more organized fire. By the time the dead, dying, and wounded actors were being triaged, the audience on the back of the truck found its voice. The spell was broken. Ten minutes, people exclaimed over and over, before formulating a reaction that foregrounded their own areas of expertise. The organizer asked the attendees to return to the building, where the training program was scheduled to continue, but shrewdly left time for VIPs to absorb what they had seen, while Special Forces members mingled and answered technical questions. In the hours that followed, the demo was pronounced a success. For some, the demonstration was shocking, partly because of the noise of the gunfire, but mostly because watching the performance felt like stepping through a portal into a world that was hitherto only suspected or rumored, where the horrific was the workaday reality. Participants in the training program from elite special forces or medical teams discussed all manner of technical details from the precise movements of the unit to the emergency response equipment. This was a realm of tactics in response to plots and machinations, sudden violence, and arcane disciplines practiced in secret. The VIPs, especially the senior police and political figures, were soon looking at their smartphones in anticipation of their next appointment. From their perspective, the demo was a theatrical performance intended to deliver a range of messages. Not only was terrorism possible, even likely, there were things to be done about it. Counterterrorism was also possible, effective, and impressive. There were entire disciplines, secret colleges, devoting to preventing the kind of terrorist violence that had become so familiar from global news. And surely it was the responsibility of politicians to employ such disciplines, to safeguard against such threats. Surely, in the event of an attack, politicians who had not taken precautions would be held derelict and punished accordingly. Underneath, however, an even more chilling message lurked. We've been lucky... So far, Anders Breivik murdered 69 people, 
mostly children, on Utoya Island, but he was little more than a nutter with a hunting rifle. The Kawachi brothers were certainly better armed when they murdered Parisian cartoonists, but they were still rank amateurs. Utoya Island, the Charlie Hebdo offices, these were horrific attacks for sure, but from an expert perspective in the cold light of day, things could have been far worse. The demo portrayed what could happen if low-level attackers marauded for 10 minutes before Leviathan intervened. Those in attendance were invited to imagine the scene of an attack carried out by peers of the counterterrorism forces who had just demonstrated their prowess. What would an attack by the real deal, men professionally trained in what is euphemistically called the delivery of kinetic force, that is, killing, look like? Nairobi Airport, February 2019. Nairobi is not the beating heart of global integration, but it is an international city, a nodal point in the contemporary. At the Jomo Kenyatta International Airport, a few weeks after the Al-Shabaab attacks on the Dusit D2 hotel and office complex, lessons drawn from the Brussels bombings and other incidents are routinely enacted. Quite some distance from the terminal, the cab is first, at least first physically, searched. Passengers get out of their cars to walk past heavily armed guards, divest themselves of phones, wallets, passports, and the like, which are placed on conveyor belts and screened, walk through a metal detector, pass more guards, reinsert phones, wallets, passports, and the like, and get back in their cabs. A few hundred meters on, passengers and their luggage are deposited, still about 100 meters away from the terminal. Upon entering the airport proper, people are searched again, and luggage and other belongings are also screened again. Would-be passengers may then look for the right queue to check baggage. Having done so, passengers proceed to a passport check with a brief interview. If successful, passengers continue on toward the gates, but not before going through another checkpoint where their bodies and hand luggage are screened yet again. Such procedures are normal, familiar, and even rather boring. Nairobi Airport, like every other major airport in the world, assumes the existence of terrorism and takes extensive countermeasures. More than airports are at issue, of course. Public spaces, critical infrastructure, much of global culture generally are variously shadowed by the threat of terrorism and governed by the imperatives of security, sometimes more, sometimes less. Not that terrorists are the only threats to security. Any number of present situations, from finance to food safety, are at least discursively addressed by security which has emerged as less a concept than a horizon for certain kinds of thought and institutional action. The immediate topic of this book, The Violence of Terrorism and Counterterrorism, is extreme, dramatic, and worth careful consideration, but concerns for security of all source suffuse the contemporary moment. We ask, what does modern mean under these circumstances, and what might we do to help? This has been Getting Through Security, Counterterrorism, Bureaucracy, and a Sense of the Modern, Part 1, on Intermittent Signal. Music written, performed, and produced by Vince Parlato. I'm David A. Westbrook. Until next time, be well. Be well.